1: Thanks for joining us again on the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. We have a really exciting episode for you today. Uh, and it starts like this. Every year since 1955, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, State Wildlife Resource a- Resource Agencies, and Provincial Agencies all collaborate to conduct what is formerly known as the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, or as many people will know it, the May Survey. Well, for the first time in its 65-year history, that survey will not occur. It is yet another casualty of the COVID-19 situation in which we all find ourselves. As all waterfowl hunters likely know, these data that are collected from the survey play an integral role in the annual process of setting harvest regulations. And many of you probably saw recent press releases announcing the cancellation of the survey and describing what is expected to happen in its absence. Now we know there are a lot of questions about what went into that decision and what it means for hunting regulations both this year and into the future. We are extremely fortunate to have as our guest today one of the people near the top of the chain in that decision-making process. Dr. Ken Richkus, the chief of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Division of Migratory Bird Management, and I'm happy to also call him a longtime friend of mine. Ken, thank you so so much for joining us, and welcome to the Ducks Unlimited
2: podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, great to be here with you today. God, it just uh, seems like yesterday that you and I were both chasing around pintails and mallards you know, across Saskatchewan and Manitoba. It's hard to believe that's been you know over twenty years now.
1: I know it. It's fun to reflect on that uh, at times, uh, and and hopefully at some point we'll have a chance to do that. But uh, but we probably need to need to talk about the the issue at hand today. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to a, a brief introduction, a bio of, of where you are. I'm, I've introduced you as the chief of the Division of Migratory Bird Management, but you've been with the service for quite some time and worked your way up through the ranks of the of the division there. So give people just an
2: idea of, of where you came from. Sure. Well, I think uh, you know a lot of folks in this field kind of grew up running around the woods in the backyard and chasing birds. And I was really no different. You know, some of my earliest childhood memories are out there hunting with my grandfather and and it's really that love of the outdoors and hunting and fishing has, has uh, really shaped a lot of my career and education choices uh, to date. Yeah, you know, I did uh, my undergraduate work at Virginia Tech where I majored in, um, in uh, wildlife science there and really got my first exposure to, uh, to working with wildlife and ducks and picking bugs and a few other things, black bears. But it was really when my time at LSU, uh, Louisiana State University, um, where I really developed the passion for, for waterfowl research and, and, uh, migratory bird, uh, management. Um, but so, yeah, my graduate research was done down there at Louisiana and down in Louisiana and I kind of, um, migrated with the birds, did my field work up in Saskatchewan. And, and, uh, so I'd spend spring and summers up in the Canadian prairies and, uh, winters down in Louisiana. So it was really the best of both worlds. Um, but I started with the Fish and Wildlife Service back in 2003, um, Largely as a staff biologist um, in our harvest survey section at the time. Um, I know, Mike, I think you've already talked to Kathy Fleming and, and Paul Padding on a prior podcast uh, about our harvest surveys and the harvest information program. So, Paul was actually one of the ones that hired me into the service back in 2003 to, to, uh, to really help improve our, our harvest survey program. After a few years, I became chief of that branch. And uh, worked hard again to, to uh, continue that cooperative survey that we have with the states and, and hunters. Um, after some time there in harvest surveys, I moved over as chief of our population and habitat assessment branch, where we were really analyzing a lot of the survey data and doing a lot of the assessment work uh, that fed into a lot of the population models and, and hunting regulations. Um, so I spent about uh, five or six years as chief of that branch and then uh, moved on to be deputy division chief for the Division of Migratory Bird Management. And uh, for about the last two years, two and a half years now, I've been uh, division chief for Migratory Bird Management located in our headquarter- headquarters office right D.C. Ken,
1: that's that's a great track record. That's a great perspective that such a track record brings with it for you to be in the in the position that you're in now. And a lot of times when I'm when I reconnect with with friends and um, and colleagues in our age bracket, uh, you know, I I can't help but reflect on earlier conversations where people um, people say, well, you know, you're going to be in in ten or fifteen years. You 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 people are going to be the ones in these positions making these decisions, and you just never at that time really allow yourself to think about that becoming reality, it's like, oh, no, I mean, no way. I'm not going to be able to fill the shoes of of that person or whoever whoever was there. And so am not saying that we are necessarily filling the shoes of those people that came before us, but we, but those things did hold true and that we are now uh, among those that are in those positions and filling the duties of the people that we respected and looked up to long before us. And so it's just... Uh, it's interesting uh, and humbling to reflect on that at times. And, and your, your your path is a, is a perfect example of that and, and the way you've moved up and, and the great work that you've done in the process. So, thanks for all that.
2: Well, thank you, Mike. I just, uh, you know, can't believe the last 20 years have seemed to go by in the blink of an eye. And you're absolutely right. You and I have been very fortunate to come into the waterfowl management enterprise and and really get to stand on the shoulders of some of the giants in, in this field, and, and uh, continue their conservation legacy. So it's uh, it's great to be a part of that uh, that long history.
1: Ken, I can't go very much farther in this conversation without expressing on behalf of Ducks Unlimited our entire organization across all three countries. Um, but. And a special thanks to you, for you and the entire service and your division for the work that you've done for many many years managing and helping sustain healthy populations of waterfowl and enabling a sustainable harvest of those species. And that that really falls squarely on uh, on the the division over which. Uh, you, uh, you you lead at this time the division of migratory bird management. So in the interest um of connecting a few dots, you know, we we say thank you for all of that work. We want to connect a few dots for people as you've kind of already referenced here that there are a number of branches uh within that division. So Briefly, just list those uh, so that people, so that our hunters, our conservationists, others that are that are listening, can begin to get a picture for what actually happened within the division that you are overseeing at
2: this time. Sure, I'd be happy to. But but first, Mike, I might want to just pick up where you left off. You wanted us to thank the service for all that we do, and I really like to take the opportunity to thank Ducks Unlimited and and many of the other partners that are out there. We don't do anything in isolation here in the Fish and Wildlife Service. We do it in collaboration with NGOs like Ducks Unlimited and others. Uh, We work very closely with the Canadian Wildlife Service and many, many state uh, natural wildlife research agencies and provincial agencies. So uh, we do nothing in isolation and um, we're all about partnership and and trying to achieve collaborative migratory bird management in, in North America. Um, and like I said, we're just a small, smaller part of that overall Fish and Wildlife Service uh, is a smaller part of that overall uh, wildlife management enterprise. As far as the migratory bird program in the Fish and Wildlife Service, we have two divisions. Well, one of the divisions that we have is Division of Migratory Bird uh, Habitat Conservation or Division of Bird Habitat Conservation. And uh, this is the side of the house that really deals with uh, the habitat issues. They administer the uh, North American Wetland Conservation Act grants, the Neotropical Migratory Bird Conservation Act. Um, They oversee some of the bird initiatives, uh, such as the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and JVs. And I really do a lot of work on the habitat side. And and I know DU is a big partner in that. And we appreciate that uh, everything you do with the the knock-a-dollar matches and and, um, just a lot of great work done there. So my division is actually the Division of Migratory Bird Management, and uh, we largely deal with the population side of the house. Everything that we do, we largely get our authority under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and uh, we're responsible for the administration or implementation of that act relative to the, the take of migratory birds. So the MBTA basically bans the take of migratory birds unless specifically authorized by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or Department of Interior. Um, so what my division does is we are really geared towards um, authorizing the take of migratory birds. Hunting seasons is, is certainly one way that we do that. And another way that we do that is through uh, permitting. But we really want to ensure that uh, take is commensurate with population status. So our division is really set up uh, with a whole bunch of different branches to be sure that we have the information that we need to responsibly manage migratory birds in the United States and really North America. So in the division, uh, we actually have four branches, um, one of which is very relevant to the conversation that we're talking about here today with May Surveys. We have the branch of migratory bird surveys, and and uh, this is our group of uh, pilot biologists, biologist just pilots. Um, we have 10 folks in that branch and about 12 aircraft uh, in the division. Uh, not very many people know that we do have a small airline here in the Fish and Wildlife Service, but. These guys are really our eyes in the skies and, and uh, fly the surveys for us each year as well as conduct some of the banding operations that we have. And uh, we have several folks in that branch too that provide us a lot of policy advice and and uh, also uh, ensure that we're doing uh, the best we can with aviation safety and, and uh, also making investments into remote sensing. So a very important branch for us. Uh, another branch have in the division is the branch of monitoring and, and data management i think you talked to kathy fleming a while back yep uh, we she did chief of that yep she is chief of that branch and uh i think you specifically with kathy about harvest surveys and the, the uh, harvest information program that collaborative state federal program that we do but kathy actually has a lot more responsibilities than that um So Kathy also oversees the data analysis from not only the May survey, uh, but also many of our other um, surveys that we do, uh, such as the Woodcock Singing Ground Survey and uh, some of the crane work and and, uh, other population surveys that we have. And Kathy's group is also responsible for putting together the waterfowl status report that everyone um, eagerly awaits a year, as well as status for uh, many of our other, other species uh, that we have as well. And then uh, another function of Kathy's branch is, you know, we've been conducting these surveys, as you mentioned, since 1955, and we have uh, quite a data set, as you can imagine. And uh, so Kathy's branch has also been giving a, a lot of thought to our, our data management and how to make that data accessible to the public and academics and NGOs and, and other folks that would like to use them. So, um, Branch of monitoring and, and data management. Another branch that we have in the division is uh, the branch of assessment and de- decision support. Uh, this is headed up by Pat Devers, and this is the group that does uh, takes a lot of the data and information that we get from our monitoring programs and really kind of meshes it with uh, all of our partners and objectives and, and puts things in a decision frameworks for us. Population models to. Do the assessment work that we need to support different uh, levels of take in the U.S. And these are the folks that, that work on the adaptive harvest management models with the flyways um, that kind of a, looks at the impacts that, uh, uh, that our hunting regulations have on actual harvest and, and also the impacts harvest has on, on uh, population dynamics of different species. So that again is a really uh, important branch for us to to do that assessment work to to be sure that we do meet our responsibilities under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and just kind of ensure that harvest or any take that we authorize is uh, compatible with with uh, the status of that that species.
1: Well, is that it, or do we have one more? It it's easy for me to get confused on these occasionally because I know uh, every now and then you go through some name changes. So, do we have any others?
2: There is one more. And this one is just as equally important, and this is the branch of conservation permits and regulations. So um, this branch, for me, they deal with the permitting side of the house and, and really authorizing take for non-game species, such as uh, to alleviate depredation events or scientific collecting type permits. Um, they also do a lot of conservation work, uh, put out guidance on uh, how to, to uh reduce impacts to migratory birds in their habitats, such as like uh, collisions with, with buildings or automobiles, uh, really working with different industry sectors to, uh, you know, to, again, anyone who wants to voluntarily reduce impacts to birds, we can provide guidance to them and some technical assistance. Uh, but a really big function of that branch is, is the regulations piece. So we can do the best surveys in the world, uh, the best assessment work from the other branches, if this isn't codified in regulations every year, uh, we don't have hunting seasons. So, one of the important roles that that branch uh, plays for us is uh, putting together all the uh, federal registered documents where we codify the uh, results of the surveys, um, the uh, results of the assessment work, the adaptive harvest management model outputs, the work with the states and flyways uh, into actual hunting regulations each year. So, really, we... Uh, All four branches in the division uh, work pretty closely, and um, um, yeah, all necessary for us to achieve uh, our goals. That's you've got your hands full uh, with with all of
1: those different (laughs) branches, and um, you know, some people may be thinking, "Hey, I just I wanted to listen to the." I've tuned into this because I want to hear about the cancellation of the survey and what it's, what it's all going to mean. But I think this is important information because I want people to realize – I believe it's important for people to realize the number of people and the, the the things that are in place within the Fish and Wildlife Service that all are important for managing this resource and enabling the harvest regulations that are – that actually come out uh, every year and then how all that data is used. It's It's – Not a simple process, and a lot of people are involved in that, and appreciate you sharing that information.
2: Yeah, I would be remiss if I also didn't mention our our flyway representatives. Um, As I I mentioned earlier, too, we don't really do anything in isolation here, and we really strive for collaborative migratory bird management in North America. And one of our biggest partners here are the, the flyway councils or the state's. And uh, we do have four flyway representatives who act as our primary liaisons between the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Flyway Council. So uh, also very, very important to uh, to get the perspectives of states and to be sure that they're interests are represented and brought forth as well. So a very
1: good point to bring that out as well because that's the other key part of this and that's the role that the states play through the flyway system in in helping to uh, provide recommendations for the for harvest regulations every every year and and we'll have a conversation about that uh, as well one day and how all that works and so a number of key players uh, all of which are equally important uh, in this annual process and so uh, of course this year we have something very different that's been been thrust upon us and that's what we really want to talk about here. Ken I first want to start out just by talking about why the the population survey population and habitat survey is so important. You've touched on some of this already it's used in what's heading waterfowl hunting regulations but just from a big picture when you describe the importance of this survey how do you do it what do you tell people what are the most important things that you want them to come away with?
2: Yeah. The, the, uh, the May survey, it's, it's really been one of the cornerstones of of duck harvest management since, uh, you know, the mid 1950s. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier on one of our major responsibilities under the migratory bird treaty act is to, to really ensure that any harvest that we allow is commensurate with population status or another way to put that is is to be sure that harvest is compatible with the population's ability to, to maintain itself over, over time. And, uh, Really, one of the biggest pieces of information that we use to do that are the results from the May survey every year. Um, so, if you're just thinking about, uh, you know, just your basic population biology 101, uh, there's several key pieces of information that you want, you need to help manage populations. And one is uh, certainly your population size that you have right now. And we get that information from, from May surveys. The other is how much uh, uh, recruitment that you have every year. Uh, how much you add to the population. And I know Kathy probably talked a little bit about the wing bees that we conduct every year. Yep, she did. And we get age ratios from that. And that's really one of our biggest indicators of recruitment every year um, on a population uh, level, population scale. So that's another key piece of information that we use. And then another thing that we want is just how much we actually uh, take every year. Or, you know, or or just mortality. And there's really two components to that. There's the hunting mortality that are a direct result of our regulations. And then there's also natural mortality. So those are, those are all the, the key pieces of information that we really use to manage duck populations in North America with, uh, you know, population size being, uh, one of the, the, the big three.
1: One of the other things I want people to realize, and I, I think it's important to, to point out, is, and, th- and this bears into the decision to cancel the survey, I, I, I'm going to guess, was the sheer scale of the survey. Now, people familiar with the survey will know there are two sort of common ways to refer to it, and they, these correspond to the survey areas that the coverage out of them. there's the traditional survey area which is largely what we call the mid-continent north america it's uh, the prairies of the u.s into canada the western boreal forest on up into alaska and then the um the arctic of of uh, northern canada to, to some extent and then there's the eastern survey area which is you know roughly if you were to look at the great lakes and take the boreal forest of canada to the east and a few states in the northeastern u.s so we have the traditional survey Area and the eastern survey area, but the scale of these areas give people an idea of what we're dealing with there. Ken,
2: all right, yeah, these these surveys are huge. They're not your your average survey. I mean, they extend, as you mentioned, in the, in the traditional survey area from South Dakota, Montana, North Dakota, all the way up through uh, the bush to Alaska and, and the territories, Northwest Territories. Um, so it is a huge expanse of uh, North America, and that that traditional survey area comprises about. Uh, Oh, I think it's about 1.3 million square miles Wow! uh, that we survey every year. And then if you were to move over to the east, as you mentioned, um, that survey area includes the maritime provinces in addition to uh, Ontario and Quebec, and then uh, parts of New York and Maine. And uh, the eastern survey area also covers about uh, 0.7 million square miles. So between the two areas, Uh, We're surveying about 2 million square miles of uh, breeding duck habitat each year in uh, North America. And I know we fly about 80,000 miles of transects each year at a hundred feet um, at about a hundred miles an hour, counting ducks and assessing habitat. That's truly remarkable. That's truly
1: remarkable. There's And there's a reason why within the wildlife conservation and management community, many people oftentimes point to this survey as the the largest, longest running landscape scale wildlife survey in the world. Now, uh, there, there are going to be critics of the survey. There's critics of any kind of effort that we do, and I think even some studies have demonstrated that, you know, for some species, it's not perfect every year, but no survey is going to be, especially when you're operating at this massive scale. And and again, it's not a census. It's a statistically-based survey, and that's the way we have to do it because you can't count every duck or goose that exists on two, on two million square miles. So, uh, it is it, it is clearly the most extensive wild Survey, uh, certainly in North America, and I would argue in the world as well. And it has been a phenomenal resource to the North American waterfowl management community and is one of the, one of the key reasons why we have been so successful at managing populations at sustainable levels as we have. So, uh, it's, just, it's just tremendous. And a number of air crews and ground crews, talk a little bit about that, about just the personnel that go into this into this effort.
2: Yeah, so this is where our branch of uh, migratory bird surveys kind of plays in. So in that branch, we do have uh, 10 pilot biologists and about 12 different service aircraft. And uh, they are, each one of the pilot biologists gets paired up with a, an observer, uh, usually from the Fish and Wildlife Service. But we have uh, also had states participate in that. Uh, so we have these pilot and observer crews, and uh, they're essentially simultaneously covering uh Big part of the, the North America um, surveying the prairie breeding ground or the uh, migratory bird uh, duck breeding grounds. Um, so it, I think in total we have about uh, at least 10 crews from Fish and Wildlife Service uh, in my branch and we also have two crews up in Alaska. So there's about 12 survey crews that it takes every year to complete uh, the surveys. And, uh, you know, they started down in the south uh, a little bit earlier, usually around the 1st of May. Uh, they're always timed based on the breeding phenology of the species, and some years it can be a little later depending on weather. Some years they can be a little earlier depending if spring progresses a little faster, and then they'll typically conclude up in the northern areas, uh, often in uh, mid June. So it's it's a pretty big undertaking, and and uh, again, you know, it kind of involves all of our people from around the country uh, in coordination. Um, uh, flying these, these areas. Uh, you described it as a pretty big undertaking. I
1: think you're uh, underselling yourself a little bit there, Ken. I, <laughs> I could not I could, I could um, imagine the amount of time that it would take if we had to start from scratch to try to implement something like this. You know, nowadays, if we started, started from scratch and did not have the long history of the gradual uh, implementation and expansion and improvement. It's just, whenever I stop and think about it, you have the pilot biologists and the observers traveling to these remote locations. And it's not like they can just fly into a major airport everywhere they go, they're going to some incredibly remote locations. Some of these planes have have floats on them, or at least I know they used to. I'm assuming you still have some float planes, and they will go into these very remote areas. And and it just takes a level of coordination and cooperation that that I think is very it's probably impossible for me to truly comprehend. But certainly from afar, I think a lot of people take it for granted. But when you start talking to some of the people that conduct the surveys, that fly the planes, go to these places and understand the logistics that they have to uh, that they have to line up uh, every year it's it's truly a a testament to the commitment of all the different agencies that are and individuals that are that are part of this now unfortunately, my equilibrium does not allow me to fly that 's something I inherited from my mom in these small planes i <laughs> I lose my stomach you know every time I try it so I have not had the fortune of being an observer, certainly not a pilot. no one would want that uh, on any of these surveys. But there, there are also ground crews. Now, that's something that I could probably do. So, talk a bit about the ground crews that are involved in this and how many of those there are.
2: Sure. So, uh, well, we're like I said, it, it is a huge undertaking every year, as you, as you mentioned, and the, the logistics that goes into it and the planning uh, is pretty unbelievable um we're also very fortunate to have lots of partners in this endeavor and, and uh, as you know as we mentioned earlier Canadian Wildlife Service is uh, kind of front and center right there with us and and make a lot of this possible especially since a lot of the flying is done north of the 49th parallel so we're really happy to have them as partners as well as several different states that also conduct their their state surveys and their information gets wrapped up into to our estimates as well so uh, it again it is a huge undertaking uh, of many different uh, agencies and partners So, yeah, kind of getting back to your question about the ground survey there. um, Obviously, we know um, even the best of folks can't fussy all the ducks from the air, especially when you're flying at 100 miles an hour and 100 feet, you're going to miss some. And uh, so what we actually do to try to get a better estimate of ducks is uh, go out there and we run several uh, segments that what we call air grounds. And uh, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head right now, but uh, there's somewhere along the tune of about uh, 20 to 30 air grounds across the. Uh, U.S. and, and the Canadian prairies where we send out a ground crew uh, to go out there and, and count ducks on some of the same transects that the planes are flying over and then we actually compare counts from the air crew and the ground crew and we kind of use that to develop uh, correction factors uh, for a lot of our estimates too so uh, it, it, it actually gives us a, a better idea or uh, estimates of duck production or estimates of duck numbers are actually a lot uh, uh, more realistic when we do correct them for a number of birds that would be missed by the air crews. So we do ground crews in in uh, the U.S. prairies and Canadian prairies, and then we use helicopters uh, in the east and, and uh, some of the bush areas to help develop those visual correction factors.
1: How many ground crews do you have and how many people are, are part of that? Do you know, have that figure off the top of your head?
2: I know in the U.S. that uh, that we're responsible for, for two. We typically have one for the Eastern Dakotas. Uh, they would be the eastern half of North and South Dakota. And then and, um, we have another crew out in the western part of the Dakotas in Montana. And then uh, Canadian Wildlife Service, I also believe, has three or four crews that uh, do the air grounds across uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And each crew has anywhere from between, uh, again, two and, and four people that kind of run around and uh, look at birds. Um, Again, try to get an accurate count of the number of birds that are there. And then uh, again, it's all georeference where you can compare all this with the air crews numbers are usually flown uh, or done around the exact same time or shortly after the the air crew flies over. And uh, really does do a a pretty good job of helping us develop uh, visual correction factors for what the air crew misses.
0: You and your dog are a team Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. I
1: want to transition now to the, the decision to cancel this year's survey. But all of that information that we've just discussed is an important backdrop to this conversation because it's not just one or two groups of people that are going out there conducting these surveys. You've got dozens of, of people. You've got, you got multiple crews that are all across this landscape and that are moving around. It's not like they go to one location and they're there for a month. They're moving around to conduct this survey across this two million square mile area. And all of that factors into some of the decisions that I'm sure the logistical challenges that you guys were encountering as you were beginning to uh to consider think about whether you could actually conduct this survey now we've talked about the collaborative nature of this survey and it's not just the u.s fish and wildlife service involved in it and actually as i was watching my email as we got into the covid 19 situation i saw some uh, i saw actually the canadian wildlife service and maybe a few states were before the service signaling their decision to uh, to cancel their participation in the breeding population survey as well as some other surveys uh Research studies in the Arctic, summer banding programs, and a lot of this just relates to. Uh, well, it's going to relate fundamentally to some of the some of the travel restrictions that were being put in place by some of those uh, countries, provinces, and states, and they were just not going to be able to allow uh, where the the travel was not going to be allowed, so they just it wasn't an option, and so they had to make that decision. And then I believe the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was one of the last. Uh, one of the, the last to come out and say, "All right, we've thought about this. We can't. We're not going to be able to pull this off, even in the states." And so there were a lot of things that went through all of this. Went went through your decision making. So, um, so let's just let's talk about that. What uh, what really were were you having to think about with respect to that that particular decision?
2: There are certainly lots of moving parts, and. Uh all these parts kind of need to align each year for us to pull off a successful survey and that's no small task. I think what really went into, into this decision was uh, really to ensure that the uh, human health and safety of uh, not only the air crews and ground crews and, and other members of uh, Fish and wildlife Service and Canadian service staff you know but also um, just members of the North American public. As you mentioned earlier, we have lots of folks moving all over the continent, and uh, you know, just the potential spread of the coronavirus was certainly a, a big concern. But health and human safety, I think, really played into the d- decision, not only for the Canadian Wildlife Service but uh, us as well. Um, that was really kind of front and center. And uh, really, what we do, you know, every time we get up in an aircraft and, and uh, turn a prop, we really need to balance the need for the mission with the associated risk. And, this year, the risk, not to our crew, but, uh, you know, other members of the the uh, North American public in Canada and the U.S. were high and, and in some cases unknown. Um, so, I think that was really one of the, the big things that went into uh, the initial decision by the Canadian Wildlife Service and, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The other big complicating factor here, really, too, was uh, things that were completely out of our control, um, like the State Department and... and uh, Well, this wouldn't be the State Department, because the other big thing that was out of our control um, was just uh, the border. I know Canada at that point had essentially closed the border uh, to travel, um, with the exception of uh, cases of um, uh, COVID response or in cases of human health and safety. So it would have been very, very difficult for our pilots and our crews to actually uh, transverse the border and cross the border to conduct the survey. Um, so that, that also factored in, um, greatly to our decision. Um, one of the things that we did explore in some good detail too, is that even the utility of just doing a partial survey in the United States. So basically North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana, and then over in the East, we would have had Maine and, and New York. And, uh, we spent a fair bit of time looking at the utility to, of, of doing that to see if, you know, any information could be gleaned from just doing a partial survey but after exploring that for a week or two, um, you know the bad thing there, I guess, is a lot of our population models and decision frameworks for setting harvest in, in North America, or at least in the U.S., are based on uh, population level estimates, um, and in many cases, they're North American level estimates. And just sec- just surveying a segment of that breeding population would have introduced and created a lot more biases than uh, we knew how to deal with at the time. So, I mean, uh, really. Decision was made at that point just to uh, to rely on other alternatives to help uh, get the information that we need rather than trying to attempt a partial survey
1: one of the things that it that occurred to me as i 'm listening to you here, Ken is that it is the first time I really even thought about this with respect to the partial survey, unless things have changed uh, and you tell me if this is if, if i'm if i'm wrong here, but the the AHM matrix, um, not sure if that's exactly what it's called, but the matrix of population size and pond conditions that's, uh, that's a key factor in, in selecting uh, liberal, moderate, or restrictive seasons, it uses – the pond count is based only on Canadian ponds, right?
2: That is correct, and that's uh, largely just a function of us having a longer time series of that pond information in Canada, um, but they know that is another key piece that that factors in our decision. And I know we've been fortunate enough to, to use some other metrics to give us an idea of what, uh, you know, conditions might be this year. And that, that will also help us inform some decisions going forward. Well,
1: that's true. Like everything it, you, you hear, whether it be on the news, daily conversations, or in, even within the organizations and agencies with which we work, we talk about how, well, when we come out of this, we're going to be doing things a bit differently. We will have learned. We will have improved. And that's going to be definitely true for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and your partners as well with respect to. Some of the data, um, some of the data collected through this survey. Maybe there's some ancillary data. Maybe it's from different ways of collecting the data. I'm sure all those types of thoughts are going to be going through your through your mind as um, as well. So, um, how high in the how high in the service did these discussions go? Well, I mean, who all were involved in the uh, in in the decisions?
2: Um, a lot of the decision uh, rested within the Division of Migratory Bird Management and Migratory Bird Program. Uh, we tried to, to look at several different alternatives on how we could, like I said, can conduct a partial survey. Uh, we looked at some of the constraints that we were looking, you know, trying to operate under with the border being closed. We were almost in daily communication with the Canadian Wildlife Service or Canadian counterparts. What we tried to do was come up with some different alternatives this year on um, not only, you know, could we conduct a partial survey and get estimates, but also how we were going to make uh, harvest management decisions in the absence of this information? So essentially, we came up with a, a plan and presented those to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director, uh, really a skip with, and, and uh, briefed her. And I know she concurred with with our assessment. You know, at that point, it was just I think easier to, given the fact that a lot of our harvest strategies did operate at that population level, the North American level it would have just been very difficult to try to piece together uh, information from partial surveys. And really, at that point, the risk of flying the mission wasn't worth the the, the reward. Yeah. No, it sounds like a
1: prudent decision to me. And and the important thing to, to emphasize, one of the many important things to emphasize is that, you know, we have, what, 65 years worth of data. It's not like we don't understand a lot about these waterfowl populations in North America. And I, I, I'm I feel confident saying you guys were were confident uh, that that we could still make informed decisions even absent uh, you know current year's data and so you know with that I want to I want to transition to what does all of this mean what does it mean with respect to we have this missing data point right that I just referenced we're not really concerned about how that missing data point would affect our ability to sustain waterfowl populations we know tons about this resource we know we have a Great understanding of how harvest uh, affects these these populations, so we're not really worried about that. At least I'm not, and I know no one, no one within Ducks Unlimited is. But with respect to hunting regulations this year and into the future, uh, you know that's probably where a lot of people have some questions. Maybe there's some uncertainty, but let's let's set a few things straight. The first thing I want to get out of the way is for the 2020. 2020 21 hunting season, that hunting season that's coming up. Let me just pose this question straight out to you, Ken. Is the cancellation of the survey this year going to have any bearing on the hunting seasons for this coming year?
2: None whatsoever. Um, so, the, the hunting seasons for the 2020-21 seasons, or the seasons that we'll be having this fall, those are actually based on a lot of the information that we collected back in 2019, uh, so, last year's breeding population uh, and, and uh, harvest survey information. So, back around 2015, I believe, the, the service made a change in how we issue the annual hunting regulations each year. And around the 2015 time period, we actually started setting regulations essentially a year in advance. Um, so, kind of using predictions already about what the population would be uh, that next year and then and uh, essentially hunting, setting hunting seasons based on that prediction. Um, So, the information for this fall, like I said, primarily came from the 2019 breeding population habitat survey.
1: Okay. So, we should be good for this coming hunting season. And if I'm not mistaken, we're recording this uh, during like the third week of May and those uh, a lot of those hunting regulation proposals have already gone out. I think they're in the hands of the states now. The states are making their recommendations. And so those should be finalized pretty soon, right? Are we pretty far along in that process, right?
2: We are pretty far along in that process. So I know um, the final frameworks um, for the the waterfowl regulations uh, in the U.S. uh, should be publishing here in the next month or so. And then once those final frameworks hit the street or are established, um, the states then have the ability to uh select their seasons within those frameworks. So that process actually started back in um April of uh uh 2019. Wow. Um and then we yeah, so that's when we had the the initial uh, kind of kicked off that regulation cycle for the 2020-21 the hunting season. And then last October, I know we had the Service Regulations Committee meeting where we heard the technical recommendations for what the season should be for that 2021 20, um, uh, hunting season. So those are kind of almost in the books and done and, and are kind of completely unimpacted by our ability not to fly the survey um, this this spring.
1: Well, Ken, I know one thing. I will be glad when we're beyond the 2020. 2023- 2021 20, time frame because that's a mouthful and it's hard for me to keep straight. So
2: yep. let's, <laughs> me too. Let's,
1: let's transition to the season that is really uh, that's that's really the focus of the conversation. And that'd be the 21-22 hunting season, a year and a half out from now. What does the service, and I know y'all have developed some talking points related to this, you didn't just cancel the survey absent any type of thinking about, well, what are we going to do in its place? So, what are we thinking at this time with respect to the 21-22 hunting seasons and how you'll go about setting those regulations, recognizing, as you've said, that they would have been the regulations set based on breeding population and habitat data that would have been collected this year?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll gladly touch on that. And, and it kind of goes back to a comment you made just a minute ago, Mike. And we, we are very, very lucky, at least in the waterfowl management world and the duck management world, that we do have these long-term data sets. You know, as you mentioned, we've been conducting the, the waterfowl uh, breeding population and habitat survey uh, every year since 1955. You know, we've been conducting a lot of our harvest surveys each year since 1961, um, banding. This is the, the centennial of the bird banding lab this year over in USGS. Uh, so we are incredibly fortunate just to have a wealth of information and, and uh, over such a long time period. So uh, we have just learned a ton about uh, you know, the resiliency of waterfowl, um, how to predict um, waterfowl population dynamics. Um, so what, what really we're going to do is use these long-term data sets um, to help us predict population abundance uh, population growth rates uh harvest um and really get some of these uh, underlying metrics that we need to make a good decision every year so there'll certainly be a little bit more uncertainty uh, associated with our our decisions but um yeah I, I don't think we're at all worried about any impact that it will have on on um waterfowl populations overall so I mean, most populations are, are at very healthy levels right now and can sa- sustain uh, harvest levels that we uh, previously have had in place. Yeah. Are there any species for
1: which uh, regulatory options for the 21-22 season might be um, less certain?
2: Oh, there's a few, I think, that might give us a, a little bit of concern. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and mention a couple of those species. And one is the Atlantic population of Canada geese. That do nest up on the Ungava Peninsula uh, each year in Canada. And I know uh, Flyway has seen some um, more restrictive regulations here in recent years because that population has had very, very poor production over the last uh, three years. So it's kind of unfortunate that we don't have the the population information from from that species or that population. Um, There's also some others out there too where we don't have as liberal regulations on scop or or pintails as well. So those are ones that. Uh, especially attention to or uh, pay a special attention to uh, going forward. So, yeah, so we won't uh, make any of these decisions in isolation either. We'll work pretty cooperatively with the flyway councils to really develop a plan for addressing, you know, missing data um, as bus counseling may surveys. I know we'll have initial discussions with the flyways. Actually, we already did have initial discussions with the flyways uh, last month at the April Service Regulations Committee meeting. And then uh, we to working collaboratively with the flyways here this summer, and uh, we'll present some options to them on how to move forward uh, for at their uh, summer flyway meetings, which will typically take place in uh, July. And uh, we'll work together to to essentially use the existing harvest strategies that we have in place, the existing objectives that we have in place, and the existing data we have in place to, to make good, um, scientifically-based, defensible decisions going forward.
1: So, Ken, is it fair to say that what you're thinking is that we're going to use our understanding of waterfowl population dynamics and harvest effects on those populations to predict what breeding duck populations would, would have been this year and then run those numbers through the typical adaptive harvest management process? Is that what we're thinking?
2: Yep. That's, in essence, exactly what we're proposing to do. And there might be a okay. tweaks you know, with that after consultation with uh, uh, the flyways. But, uh, you know, we are, have several population models in, in existence that do to predict um, what populations might be given any level of harvest and different conditions. So we have a lot of the infrastructure uh, there already um, through the adaptive harvest management process. And it would really just be a matter of taking our anticipated population size that we're going to get based on examining some of these long term data sets and uh, kind of running it through the existing AHM machinery. Um, So we're really not expecting too many big changes here. For the twenty-one twenty-two hunting season,
1: but that's a, that's an important point, and I know that language is consistent with, the, with some of your talking points. And we're really not expecting any major changes um, from from year to and and it's rare that we would see that anyway. Even when we have this data, you know, it's rare that we see waterfowl populations or habitat conditions make tremendous jumps, certainly across the board. And so there's there's typically been a fair degree of stability from one year to the next, save some exceptions, and those would be the 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 species or situations around which there may be more uncertainty at this given time. But but yeah, that was one of the things that I took as well from your uh, from your talking points is we shouldn't expect too many changes. Uh, I know we're going to have to start wrapping this up here pretty soon, Ken. So just a couple of additional questions here. Is there any reason for hunters to think that a 21-22 season might be in jeopardy by the survey not being flown this year?
2: Not at all. Um, like I said, we fully ex- intend and expect while hunting for the uh, twenty one twenty two hunting season. You know, we've already kicked off that regulations process with the, the April Service uh, Regulations Committee meeting that we had last month. And as you mentioned, Mike, um, you know, most populations there are pretty healthy levels and can sustain harvests that we've uh, previously set in place. And, um, you know, really, we're really not anticipating too many changes here. And, and um, but we will work closely with the flyways and kind of identify appropriate measures for some of the species of concern but again uh, we're not really expecting at this point uh too much to be different
1: do you at this time i know there's some uncertainty with uh, with our, with the, the pandemic and what it will look like a year from now but assuming things have settled down do you anticipate the survey resuming as normal next year assuming things settle down
2: absolutely i think you know we're eager to uh to get back to doing what we do best as soon as we possibly can but i know at least right now we're kind of uh And looking at things day to day and and, uh, trying to make good uh, decisions with the restrictions that we have in place. I know it's probably too early to speculate on what next spring might bring uh, relative to this pandemic, but I'm hopeful that we'll have different measures in place that would allow us to continue the survey and uh, yeah, get back to doing what we do best. So I think, um, yeah, I'm very, very hopeful that we'll be back on track um, later this summer and or next spring. That's
1: yet another thing for us all to look forward to is the resumption (laughs) of the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey in 2021. My goodness, I know I will welcome that with open arms. Uh, Now, one of the things that we're going to be missing this year, I think, is uh, the annual status report. Have you all talked at all about any type of uh, sort of substitute publication, uh, or, or is that not even really on the radar at this time?
2: Um we have I, th- I still think we'll get some data uh be able to, to, to get glean some data from uh, some of the limited inf- information that we have it'll certainly be uh, an abbreviated status report um we'll be able to uh you know, again at least report what we have and and um uh, I know the, the adaptive harvest management report that we'll put out this year will probably spend uh, some time talking about you know how we are going how we made decisions uh without some of this information that we have every year. So um, it's kind of a, a bit of a work progress, but um, yeah, we'll be ready to communicate with hunters um, the best we can. And uh, yeah, it, it, that's always tough. You know, I've been involved in this survey or this survey has been such an important part of my life for, for well, most of my life. And I think back and used to eagerly await, uh, you know, getting that um the results of the status report that would come out every of July and just kind of get a glimpse of what hunting seasons might have to offer. So it's going to be real difficult not having that uh, this year. I know that's important not only for me, but a lot of the other duck hunters out there as well. So, but we will, we will get by.
1: That's an important annual time stamp for everyone that cares about waterfowl populations, waterfowl <coughs> conservation. And so, we'll have to look, look to something to fill that void, but I'm sure we will find it. Uh, it's just going to be a different year like it has been in so many different ways. Now, one thing that I, that I wanted to say here is that it's not just the waterfowl population survey that was canceled. There are other uh, banding operations that are likely going to be canceled. Uh, research operations in the Arctic have been canceled uh, the breeding bird survey, the USGS is one of the lead agencies responsible for kind of coordinating that. It was also canceled. So the, the pandemic has affected a number of large scale, long-term, uh, bird population data collection efforts. Uh, so, you know, it's had far reaching, uh, effects on everything we do. And I'm not telling people anything they don't already know, but, uh, but Ken, I know some of these decisions have yet to be made. You've talked about what you think is going to happen. And we really appreciate that. Appreciate the service, uh, developing the talking points and laying out, communicating to to us all what we think is going to happen. Now, that – those, like I said, those decisions have yet to be made. Once they're made, would you be willing to come back on and talk with us about how things actually played out and what we'll be looking at whenever those uh, – whenever that time comes? <laughs>
2: Oh, certainly would be. I always have, uh, enjoy, well, enjoy having the opportunity to sit down and, and uh, interact with, with you, Mike, and some of our partners. And then also being able to reach out to the, the duck hunters out there. Um, it's just every time I do chat with hunters, it just amazes me, um, just how passionate they are and, and uh, how conservation minded they are. And, and any information that I can uh, give them to help them out is, uh, is something I strive to do. So, I Certainly, be willing to to sit down and chat with you or or uh, Ducks Unlimited again as as we progress through this this era of uncertainty.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Well, Ken, you have been incredibly generous with your time. I appreciate you getting on the phone. I, it is not uh, – you know, you you're a busy person, and so for us to be able to take an hour and 15 or so minutes out of your schedule, um, that's, that's greatly appreciated on my part and, and everyone within the community that's going to hear this, I know. So, so thank you so much for that. Any final words for, for the listeners that you might want to leave us with?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I guess you know, kind of looking at some of the internet chat rooms and Facebook pages, there there does seem to be a lot of worry about uh, how this could impact hunting opportunity in the U.S. And and uh, I uh, yeah, if I want to leave folks with anything, is it's just the fact that we do have ways to to make these tough decisions in the absence of data, and I really don't see this uh, impacting uh, folks' hunting opportunity in the U.S. And again, we look forward to to working with the states and our other conservation partners for uh, conservation of waterfowl and providing some of these opportunities.
1: I'm sure that's music to the ears of so many waterfowl hunters across, uh, across the U.S., uh, and so thanks for sharing that. Thanks to every one of your staff for the work that they do on an annual basis, uh, many of whom I know personally and, and have spoken with already and plan to speak with others uh, in, the, in the future. But thanks again, Ken, for your time. Thanks for your effort. Thanks for joining the Ducks Unlimited podcast.
2: Uh, appreciate the opportunity, Mike. Thanks.
1: We extend a very special thanks to our guest on today's show, Dr. Ken Richkus, the Chief of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services Division of Migratory Bird Management. We greatly appreciate Ken spending a fair bit of time with us talking about the May Survey, the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, and importantly, the, the decision that was made this year to cancel that survey, as well as the implications of that decision for the upcoming waterfowl hunting season, as well as hunting season in 21-22. We learned a great deal and appreciate his insights and him spending the time with us likewise we thank our producer clay barrett who does a great job editing these episodes and getting those out to you and you the listeners we thank you as always for the time that you spend with us for choosing this podcast and most importantly we thank you for your support passion and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation